This program is part of the Cosmic Potato Podcast Network. For more shows like this, visit our website at cosmicpotato.com. Hi, this is Shane. And this is Virginia. And this is Wait, You've Never Seen, a podcast dedicated to discussing well-known movies and TV shows that one of us has never seen. And today we're joined by a special guest because we're discussing Wait, You've Never Seen 2001, A Space Odyssey? It's still going. It's still, it's playing on the TV right now. We still haven't... I'm sorry. No, no one's spe- ever seen uh, the end of it. Absolutely. Our special guest tonight is the founder of the Infinite Diversity Podcast Network and a regular Cosmic Potato contributor, Rick. Hiya. Hello, Rick. That sounds really important. <laughs> well, <laughs> you, more you important s- than it is. <laughs> you start with the word infinite. Now you already got my attention. Ooh. Right. Ooh. So we're going to do a little discussing of this long movie. Well, you know what? <laughs> Let's save uh, judging interesting, for Interestingly, <laughs> as, as you probably both know, I do like the trigger warnings up front and everything. This movie was so boring. Like, I didn't even notice anything that needed to be announced. Like, it was... People didn't talk too much. They, there was not a whole lot of violence. There, there was violence. There wasn't any, hardly any women. There's, so, well, yeah. There's, how a, there's kills a computer the people. killing people. <laughs> That's true. Spoilers. Anyways, moving on. Okay. So, uh, Virginia, tell me three things that you expect from this movie. I'm sorry, Shane. I'm afraid I can't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Um, That was good. Long and boring. I had attempted to watch this once before, and I literally fell asleep. Rick and I are going to send you out in the pod. (laughs) (laughs) The E33 antenna needs checking. (laughs) Just a moment. Just a moment. I expected to see a lot of familiar things because, as you both have mentioned, it was a starting point for a lot of sci-fi movies, very groundbreaking. So, see, I do respect the classicness of the movie. I don't know what you mean by respect, but okay. And, finally, 
with yes. a theme like 2001 A Space Odyssey, I mm-hmm. expected amazing music. Okay. All right. Excellent. Okay, so uh, did you expect to like this movie? She's shaking her head. Not really. <laughs> you didn't expect Long and boring. Two okay. stars. Two stars. What is your one sentence summary? <laughs> <laughs> I think y'all will both appreciate this. Okay, let's go. Space. The final frontier. <laughs> this is the odyssey of a space station orbiting a planet that appears to be Earth. Its mission to be long and boring. <laughs> to boldly orbit where no one has orbited before. See, I should I feel like I should clarify the orbit thing because when we don't know anything about the movie, we're allowed to send each other the like uh, movie posters. The poster, yeah. And it looked like some sort of Deep Space Nine-esque space station orbiting a planet that looked like Earth. So I'm like, Odyssey, this is, I don't, I was it, very confused. That's why the, I put orbiting. The poster she saw was the one, there's several. The poster she saw was the one of the Pan Am yeah. uh, ship going into the, the uh, space station. Mm-hmm. With, I think, maybe the moon in the background? I think so, yeah. It's that one. I, I know it fairly well. <laughs> <laughs> so, would you like to know what IMDb says about this fine sure. film? Sure. How long was it? 17 hours? Well, that's two how long. <laughs> well, not, even, not quite two and a half, right? Was yeah, it was close. Okay. After discovering a mysterious artifact buried beneath the lunar surface, mankind... I don't know what the ladies were doing. Mankind sets off on a quest to find its origins with the help from intelligent supercomputer HAL 9000. HAL 9000. She was that is a thoroughly inadequate description. <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> I'm just reading what they wrote. <laughs> I what, agree, though. What was it rated out of curiosity? Because this came out in 68? It's rated G, actually. It's, yeah, 1968. Rated G. So pre-moon landing. Very yeah, just... Yeah, he was actually in contact. Uh, uh, Stanley Kubrick was in contact with uh, NASA and kept getting updated moon photos and whatnot. So, after watching this movie... Yes. I, I honestly <laughs> do appreciate... Like, I saw a lot of, like, beginnings of the things I see, like, in Star Trek and... Archer, of course, their whole season this season is Archer in space, basically. Yeah, Archer um, 1999. So I, I really do appreciate that, but oh my god, it was this is the first movie out of all the movies we watch where I almost fell asleep. I fall asleep a lot, to be honest. It's true. <laughs> Can I make a confession? Please. Yes. I love this movie. It yeah. is a very hard watch, and I will grant you that. It is. Now, Rick, uh, Sorry to put you on the spot, but you actually watched this recently, right? Or rewatched this recently? I just finished watching it about 45 minutes ago. Wow. Wow. Okay. Oh, you're fresh. How are you still <laughs> awake? Do you need a nap before we continue? The, well, there's, there's, a, there's a little button on your remote that's got two arrows pointing to the right. It <laughs> comes in very handy with this phone. Oh, oh yeah. We, we, uh, so total disclosure, we did not sit through the intermission. Oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah, my sister Anne refers to this as um, a bad movie, but a great film. I would agree with that. <laughs> I'll, I'll, Which, I'll buy that, yeah. Yeah, it's not. it wasn't made for entertainment. It's, it, it's art. It's so, definitely art. 
Um, I did bump my rating down a little to okay. 1.5 because oh. it was really, it was even more boring than I expected. Like, I expected at least some kind of human interaction. Like, I didn't expect them to be so isolated, which I know is realistic to, like, the, if we were actually traveling in space, sure. it wouldn't be, like, you know, filled with people. You'd only be sending a few people. Yeah. But it was still so boring. I'm so sorry. <laughs> 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 it's okay. So, Rick, what what do you think of this movie? Okay. Um. So, a lot of of. Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out where to start with this because this uh, this movie has been part of my life almost my entire life. Yeah. Um. Now, granted, I'm not old enough to have seen it in cinemas when it was out. Um. I was three years or four years old in 1968. Um, and I don't think I would have made it through the film then, <laughs> but I think I, I read a book about the making of the movie when I was like nine or 10. Wow. Just, it was, That's it was one of those, I, I, there was this library, you know, you know how your, your, some of your early memories don't really lock into any sort of reality other than just, I was in this library. It was not the first time I'd been in this library. I found this this book about 2001 at the time I was already a huge Star Trek fan. So anything with spaceships or rockets or anything like that grabbed my sure. attention. Yeah. So I'm reading all of these facts about this movie I've never seen and barely heard of. Um, and then years later, I, you know, I finally saw it. Um, but also I'm a huge Arthur C. Clarke fan. And mm -hmm. if you're not familiar uh, listeners with the Genesis of 2001, a space odyssey, Stanley Kubrick, uh, teamed up with Arthur C. Clarke with the idea was to write a novel, a science fiction novel, and then base a film on that novel. It's um, supposed to be the the end-all, be-all, the best science fiction movie ever made about space. Right? At the time, yeah, yeah. Because you, you have to keep in mind, and that's that's the main thing you have to you have to try to do when watching this movie is the con the, the, the temporal context of the film is very important. Because in sure. 1968, movies took a lot longer to, to tell their stories. Um, and also, Star Wars was still uh, nine years away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, or, yeah, 68. Yeah, nine years away. Um, and if you look at the science fiction films of the time, you know, we're, we're like in Rocket Ship XM and, and when worlds collide and it, you know. Right. Things like that, where your spaceship is basically a silver cylinder with a sparkler stuck in the back of it. <laughs> <hanging on the street. laughs> uh, so I kind of, well, well, yeah, it's, it's a hard watch. It's a hard slog. But if you can appreciate the art of the fact that nobody had seen this kind of realistic space travel before. Uh, and, you know, humans had barely been in space at this point. Right, yeah. Um, so... I kind of don't fault Kubrick for the long, lingering, loving, operatic, balletic spaceship moments. And watching it again today, uh, a lot of the effects, yeah, you know, like some of them, it's like, wow, that is so clearly just a piece of cardboard painted to look like a spaceship and dragged across the frame. <laughs> um, but there's other things like the the, uh, the the space station and the landing of the moon, the, that, that spherical moon shuttle and going down into the moon base and stuff that just those effects are as good or, or as or better than anything that's being done today. Um, you know, it revolutionized science fiction film. 
the story right. is loosely based on one of Clark's short stories called The Sentinel, uh, with a couple other things thrown in. Um, and then the ending, of course, is just this acid trip that you know Kubrick went ape with. I have um, so many questions about that, which we will get to. But yes, yeah. I was I had no idea what was happening. I do, and I can explain it if you want when we get there. <laughs> well, I have my um, own feelings, Rick, and I hope I hope we meet. I, you know, I hope we don't well, have, have to argue. <laughs> have, have either? Have, well, have you have you read the novel? I have not. I haven't read the Sentinel. No, I've read a couple of. Uh, I've listened to books about the making of, and you know, seen documentaries and things like that. Well, I mean, never the, read the actual two thousand one, the the book two thousand one. No. Okay. Because he does, he explains what happened. He explains the what anyway, what it's supposed to be. Kubrick kind of went in a different, slightly different direction. <laughs> right, Arthur C. Clarke explained yeah. what I see. What that is, I see. But so, oh, uh, a point I was I was trying. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Just really quickly, the reason I mentioned that I'm a fan of Clark's is that a lot of Clark's books are 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 like this movie. Not a whole lot happens, but they're fascinating anyway. Uh, right. my, my, my favorite book of Clark is, is uh, Rendezvous with Rama, in which uh, an alien artifact, giant cylinder, uh, enters the solar system, completely blowing everybody's mind because it's the first exposure to anything alien. Uh, and it passes through and a, a, an Earth ship goes aboard and stuff happens, but nothing happens. It's really it's, it's kind of hard to explain without spoiling. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I kind of really like that that aspect of his where where there's no dog fights there's no giant robots there's no superhuman beings or anything there's just mystery and it's not always explained yeah i think a little bit of mystery is honestly it's honestly okay i like explanations (laughs) (laughs) may i talk about i'm sorry we're only just talking we see this podcast is as slow as the movie i can i talk about the opening sequence real quick yes because i have a few things to say about it so as I, well i think that the opening sequence encapsulates the movie for you it's slow paced it's deliberate it takes it time it takes its time but then eventually it gets to these beautifully impeccably designed breathtaking images the sun slowly coming up over i think it's the earth with the title mm-hmm. of the movie appearing, with that iconic "Thus Spoke Zarathustra," Zarathustra, Zarathustra, you know the blaring to a triumphant conclusion. I mean, it it's just it doesn't even look like it comes from 1968. The font choice is you know perfectly elegant, and simple, and clean. It fits with contemporary design today, I think. Wait, are you talking about the opening sequence the when title we finally sequence. get to space or the opening sequence with the eight people? No, the title se- the title sequence literally where it plays that theme, the oh. 2001 theme and then you see the you know, you see the sun coming up. See, you know why I have a problem with the semantics here is because um, when you Shane say a movie is called The Mutiny on the Bounty. Yeah. There better be a mutiny in the first 15 minutes. 20. I give it 20 minutes. I want a mutiny this on the This movie is called 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. We don't even get to space until 20 minutes in. So that's, we got there, that's though. not the opening sequence. The opening sequence is the eight people. I didn't say opening. I said title. title you said sequence. opening first, though. Did I say opening? Yes, you did. 
Oh. Don't look at I me. Did. I'm not uh, getting <laughs> the opening title sequence. <laughs> Sorry. But to, to be fair, the title sequence does start beyond the moon, so it is in space. Oh. Whatever. I'm so right. <laughs> I'm right, just so kidding. moving on. And it's 25 minutes until we get the first spoken line that isn't ape screaming. And 54 minutes until we actually get to the Jupiter mission, which is literally an odyssey. So can y'all explain to me the stone monolith thing? Because we see it with the eight people. Not necessarily a stone, but go on. We see it on the moon. And we see it, I think, floating near Jupiter? Or is it on the spaceship? That's sort of like the Stargate. So, like, what's the deal with the monolith? That was totally beyond me. Well, that's the representation of the alien presence, right? Right, Rick? You'd probably be able to yeah. speak more to... Well, okay, so what's it, it's got three different functions in the film. The first monolith, that uh, Moon Watcher, which is the name of the lead ape that figures out how to break... <laughs> with a, uh, sorry, break stuff with a bone. <laughs> um, if you listen to my any of my podcasts, folks, I'm a potty mouth. I apologize. Yeah, we, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we are, too. I've heard. We just, <laughs> we just beep it out. And by um, me, I mean me. Thank you. The, the 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 first monolith is we're we're led to believe that these aliens essentially uh, they observe primitive planets where life is just getting started off, and if they find a a species that is promising but needs a little nudge in the right direction, the monolith gives them that. And so, what the monolith gave to Moonwatcher and his tribe was the knowledge of how to kill. And that made ah. them the apex predator and essentially set the, 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 the earth on the, on the path towards creating humanity. Um, the monolith that was on the moon was buried 40 feet down. And in the book, it goes into a lot more detail about them finding it. Uh, the way they find it is it's, and there's a bit of a discussion about it, is it has a huge electromagnetic field that no natural thing could generate. Yeah, they discuss and, that briefly in the movie, right? Yeah, but it's it's like you could blink and you miss it. Yeah, and uh, so essentially, its its job is to sit there and wait until the the humanity or whatever a race that's technologically advanced enough to find it digs it up, and then it sent a signal signal to Jupiter. That's what that big beep was. Right. The uh, Clark called it the 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 galactic fire alarm or something. Yes. Yeah. And then the, 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 the monolith that was in orbit around Jupiter is what, and Clark actually used the word Stargate. Yeah. Um, what they didn't show in the movie is in the, in the book, the idea was that uh, Dave Bowman takes his pod into the monolith and that's when he starts his journey. But yeah, they couldn't work out what that would look like and not make it look silly. Yeah. To my knowledge. I see. So, uh, what is, and I don't mean this like in a negative way, I mean it like in a curious way, what is the purpose of this movie? Is it like to solve the mystery of the monoliths or is it like to prevent Hal from becoming a serial killer <laughs> or some combination of both of them? Like, I feel like there needed to be some sort of connecting purpose from all of these disjointed stories. At least to me, they seem disjointed because we never see what's his name again. Well, it's all about these aliens who who have a way different prime directive. Yeah. <laughs> way, way, way different. 
I feel like what's-his-name is going to bust in here any minute and be like, I'm not saying it's aliens. But it's aliens. But it's aliens. <laughs> the the yeah. thing about the aliens, and it's and it's something that Clark likes to play with, is that they are kind of like the, the wormhole prophets. They okay. are not linear. They are not in linear time at all. That was kind of the whole point of the of the the hotel room at the end. Oh, okay, See, Rick's yeah. speaking my language now. Put it in Star Trek terms. <laughs> so Sorry, I don't have the vast knowledge that Rick has. <laughs> I, I have vast knowledge of totally useless stuff. <laughs> no, it's awesome. I've heard you on podcasts before, and so, someone can just go, "Yeah, the one thing that happened in this one Star Trek episode," and you're like, "Oh yeah, here's everything about that." I'm like, "Wow, that's amazing." <laughs> Um, but that there's your connecting thread, uh, Virginia is this, this is not necessarily the story of Dave Bowman or Frank Poole or Hal or Moonwatcher or the star baby or anything. This is the story of the aliens tinkering with humanity. I right. see. Yeah, that makes sense. Go ahead. I have a couple more things, but please go ahead. I don't want to monopolize the conversation. So I first watched this when, when I was eight years old, and it just absolutely captivated me. You know, the the design of the ships and the space station and all those little details. Like, I think it was the, the Howard Johnson moon view room, yeah. maybe. <laughs> like, I just thought that's just absolutely inspiring and wonderful. And I think they went around, didn't Kubrick go around to, like, uh, you know, washing machine makers and decided, okay, like, what would it be like if you needed to make them for a space station or the moon? Like, what would you need to, you know? And he, he liked the idea of, like, overcomplication of everything. Like, when um, when Floyd is u- trying to use the, the, the zero-gravity bathroom, the zero-gravity mm-hmm. <laughs> toilet, there's, like, the first thing it says is read all instructions. And there's like a whole paragraph as a whole, like I was sitting there thinking like, what if I really have to go? I don't have time to read 50 instructions. I think it's the movie's only attempt at humor. <laughs> Probably. I, I know I, I couldn't tell you what it says, but I know that that book that I read when I was a kid had the text of what was on oh there goodness. in it. It's probably called the making of 2001 or something like that. I'm sure right. it's out there. That's that's fantastic. One effect that I really like, I feel like the actress gave it the old college try, was when um, the, I guess, would you call it a flight attendant on a spaceship? Yeah. Um, was clear, was using the grip shoes, but was attempting to make it look like she was, you know, in zero gravity. Kind of, and, almost stumbling in slow motion. Sort right. Of. Yeah. And I'm like, that's really, when we really have no idea what it's like to be in space with no gravity yeah like how do you portray that on film and i'm like that was i think she did really good with what information she was probably working with and that effect with the with the pen seeming to like just float Uh like that was a beautiful simple effect you know how they did it like that yeah with a piece of glass right yeah Uh glass and some sort of adhesive yeah, Wait, they just what? stuck it to a, a piece of glass and made sure it was very, very oh. clean. Yeah, it wasn't just, like it wasn't like super, super thin like wires. There was no wires. That's why it moved. I thought it so was wires. Yeah. Yeah, they couldn't get that movement with wires. I don't think. And like you know the, something else. Thing... To, Sorry, go ahead. Something else to keep in mind that I was I was thinking about. I wouldn't have thought of this except that I did a, a whole podcast about Space 1999 a few years back. Uh-huh. There were no computer graphics at the time. All of those yes. readouts were all hand drawn. It was all animation. Amazing. And not only that, they had to like Kubrick demanded that they have like dedicated uh, projections. 
mm-hmm. like uh, uh, what are those things called? <laughs> you know, there, there's film projectors behind every single display. Yeah. In that in that circular room, in that in the what do they call it? The um, they call it the centrifuge. Centri- yeah. Oh, where he's running and the thing is rotating. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which, they're you. just like all nonchalant about it. Meanwhile, there's so many things going on right there. <laughs> like there's that one like pool. Frank Pool is like strapped in. Yeah. Is it up when there? He's in like, bed. <laughs> yeah, it's all like, oh yeah, we're all nonchalant. It's like, no, there's so many amazing things happening right here. In a real low key way. They're doing incredible things. I, I read tonight that uh um they had a problem with, with the centrifuge because you know that while the, the actors were moving the right. camera and the lights were fixed to the wheel uh-huh. and the the theatrical lights at the time the studio lights didn't like being turned upside down and would frequently explode and rain hot glass down on whoever was oh my them. god it's it, kubrick a little bit tortured people a little <laughs> a little bit <laughs> i'm just uh-huh. trying to be not, like i i mean he's just yeah he really <laughs> Well, we just watched uh, Clockwork Orange. Well, Rick hasn't heard our episode yet because we're putting it out this week. But by the time this comes out, we will have already watched it. And you were telling me about the lid block things that that what's his name, like scratched his eyes. Yeah, right. Like Stanley, Stan, come on, dude. Oh, and and the the torture he put poor Shelley Duvall through during The Shining. Oh, yeah. Look it up, folks. It's 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 terrible. So Hal 9000 is a straight-up, cold-blooded serial killer. Well, was it serial killer or a mass killer? Because he really kind of killed them all at the same time. He was given conflicted information, by the way. I don't know. Yeah, Rick, do, what do you think about Hal? Do let, you think... let me ask one yeah. particular question first. Sorry. Is Does Hal qualify as a robot? And if so, do the laws of robotics apply to him Ooh, or it or whatever? No and no. Hal is okay. a computer. Okay. Hal is not a robot. Um, Hal can control computers, robots. Computers don't have to adhere to the rules of robotics. Well, no, the only, well, the laws of robotics are from Asimov's story, so, right. stories. Yeah, so, true. um, they don't necessarily apply in Clark's universe. Um, but no, Hal, Hal is a computer. He is a, a um, you know, he is the ship, uh, in the same way. Like you wouldn't call the Enterprise's computer a robot. Um, True. But I mean, they go out of their way to say, like, look, it's essentially artificial intelligence. Yeah, yeah. Which is, and then he he displays like emotions, and he he gets scared. He has pride. Like, is it? Do you believe that he's a an independent, you know, soul? Ooh, but that's a that's a that's a loaded word. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, and I'll um, and I'll just tell you, I don't really believe in the soul. Okay. Um. I, I I think that Hal is certainly sentient. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it was interesting because watching it with our our like Star Trekian uh, sensibilities when right. when Dave is shutting him down, I actually felt sorry for Hal, and I had to keep reminding myself he just killed five people <laughs> or right. four people and tried to kill a fifth one. Um, <laughs> now, I, I, Virginia, I'm assuming you've never seen 2010, right? I have not. Okay, Shane, have you? This is some sort I of have, yeah. kind of a sequel, but they, not really a sequel. It's a no, sequel. it's it's totally a sequel. 
It's a sequel, but like th- there are some who criticize it. But w- we don't have to go into that. No, in I'm interested we... in what. what well, you in have case to we. Say. They answer some questions that you have. Oh, yeah. Okay. As far yeah, as that, that's why I brought it up because gotcha. I don't know how far you want to go with the answers. Um, yeah, we might. By the not. way, I love 2010, and you all yeah. should watch it. It is a, It is not in any way stylistically similar to <laughs> what you just watched. So. so. Is it more entertaining? Is that what yes, you're saying? Okay. Very much so. Because uh, I was more... about to say, if it's the same, if it's on the same level as 2001, I'll just take your <laughs> word for it and never watch it. <laughs> no, and it's Roy Scheider and Helen Mirren. Uh, oh, I do love Roy Scheider. Yeah. And Helen Mirren. Mm-hmm. It's, I'm it's sorry, anyway. My... Uh, anyway, <laughs> sorry. And that one dude from, from, uh, from... Oh, John Close Lithgow's Encounters? in it. The dude from Close Encounters is in there too, right? No, he looks... No, he, he's... Not Richard Dreyfus. Dr. Chandra is similar to Richard Dreyfus. Oh, oh, wait, is Robert... No. There's a one... I can't... Uh, he, he's one of the... He's the guy who's the uh, I'm an inter- I'm an interpreter, but I was I was uh, t- he's a um, he's a cartographer in in Close Encounters. Anyway, we're getting in the weeds. I'm, you're looking at me like <laughs> I can help you here, and I I have no idea what you're no, talking I'm just, about. I'm just, I'm... <laughs> anyway, we should move on. This is so, this is already way too much. <laughs> questions about how? Yes. Okay. 2010 or is it 2010? Did I say that wrong? Doesn't matter. Anyway, we're going to get in a whole other weeds there. So, what were you going to say about how? Uh, he's not a robot. The, ro- the the laws of robotics do not apply to him. Um, do I think he's a, a serial killer? No, I think he's a malfunctioning computer. Malfunctioning computer. Yeah. So, I would like to say something about um, the con- uh, the connections to Homer's Odyssey. Okay. In 2001, A Space Odyssey. Uh, yeah, just so real quick. So Dave Bowman is kind of the hero of the Discovery One. Uh, that's the ship that makes the journey to Jupiter. So the name, Odyssey to Jupiter, I think you mean. His name is Bowman, <laughs> which is a nod to Odysseus in Homer's poem, The Odyssey. The bow was um, Odysseus's weapon of choice. Nice. Uh-huh. I was unaware of that. Dave and Odysseus were also very loyal to their crew. I started going down this rabbit hole and going, ah, wait a minute, because I'm like, like in a Joseph Campbelly sort of hero with a thousand faces kind of way. I'm like, I wonder what other connections are there in this. Well, so while they while they were writing the book uh, slash screenplay screenplay, yeah. uh, Kubrick gave Clark a copy of the Hero with a Thousand Faces. No way, I didn't know that. That's <laughs> awesome. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Sorry, person who has to edit that. <laughs> so Dave and Odysseus were both loyal to, uh, to their crew. When Odysseus sees uh, his crewmate um, Alpinor, Al- Alpinor, I'm not sure how to say it. In uh, he sees he sees a crewmate in Hades, and he agrees to go back to the island where he died to bury his body. Alpinor dies in an accident. He falls off a roof. Frank Poole dies on the top of the ship in a quote-unquote accident, and Dave Bowman tries to retrieve Poole's body using the pod's arms. Hmm. I must confess, my knowledge of ancient Greek literature is somewhat limited to theatrical uh, studies. And yes, I was educated in the Texas public school system, so my Greek knowledge is non-existent. I, I went 
I went down a Joseph Campbell wormhole. <laughs> I'm so sorry. So sorry if I'm derailing. But anyway, yeah, there's... That's very interesting. And it makes me think of other movies that we've watched as like might fall into that category that I didn't really think of at the time. Yeah, like Joseph Campbell's whole idea is like, you know, that every story you love that's about a great adventure, it's kind of the same story. And no matter what time or place it is, people keep telling the same stories. Right. And George Lucas was one of his greatest disciples. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Campbell loved him. Mm -hmm. Thought he really got it. So do we want to talk a little bit about music? Because the opening theme, the opening title theme, (laughs) is one of the most iconic pieces of music probably in American culture. That's true. I mean, I knew what it was even before I saw it. Um, he uses uh, the Blue Danube waltz, which he also used in Doctor Strangelove, which we've watched before. Um, the one thing, I mean, I really like the music, except for as it was getting towards the end, it was, it got very discordant, which I don't have a problem with as long as it resolves at some point, and it just kept being discordant and discordant, and, and I'm like, I get you're trying to build suspense and what's going to happen, but my ears literally <laughs> hurt from this discordant music. So I don't know. Do y'all have thoughts and opinions on the use of music? The 60s was a very, very strange decade, and the 70s got even worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I sort of like the idea, the like when a ship is docking with a space station to play a waltz. Like that's, you know, that's... Um, I hesitate to use uh, use the word adorable, but it is sort of adorable. Yes. Yeah, I, I mean, appreciate- so there... Sorry, I just have one quick thing to say mm-hmm. about, like, the, the discordant parts. Like, when you're uncomfortable, like, that's the feeling that Stanley Kubrick wants you to have. <laughs> I yeah. understand that. But it, it hurt my ears. That's all. <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry that happened here. <laughs> I'm sorry. Rick, what were you going to say? Uh... Well, I, I, just from a from a production standpoint, I appreciate using public domain music because uh, it meant he didn't have to pay royalties for the for the music. Right, right, right. Um, as as far as the the discordant stuff, yeah, I I I'm with you, Virginia. I don't like it. Um, I, I I can understand it being its use. Uh, I did like the the uh, the choral voices used for the sound of the monolith, um, but yeah, oh, eventually yeah. you got to just really turn that stuff down. Um, but like, you know, I will now do my impression of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's not nice. I I found myself trying to imagine the, trying to imagine the, 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 the singers actually in the studio going. (laughs) Oh, I would, I would love, I would, I want to see that whole session. (laughs) All sweaty and. (laughs) No, you sang that note wrong. How could you tell? No notes. Um, um, I believe the I, word tone poem comes to mind. And, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, that was the worst part of music appreciation for me. <laughs> I just have a couple things left about the end of the movie. Do y'all have anything? Well, can I just get, before Rick gives us the right version, can I give you, the, <laughs> can I give you my, my interpretation, like the way I feel about the last 20 minutes? Sure. So I feel like if a human catches a fish... 
and takes it home and puts it in an aquarium. Like, that's kind of what we're seeing. Like, the eyes and the brain of a fish are way so, so different from ours, and the experience of the fish being caught and transported and housed in a weird artificial environment would be, like, very strange and traumatic and completely incomprehensible. I think that's sort of what's happening. Like, if a life force were to grab you, like, pluck you out of space and to take you to its interdimensional whatever it is. There's an episode about uh, the Twilight Zone about that. And then sort of make this little cage for you where we'll feed you and we're going to put a fake little tree in there for you or, you know, whatever it is we, we think you're going to like. But you're not going to really be able to comprehend the thing that, ca- you know, that caught you. Mm-hmm. I think that, that is exactly right. Oh, is it? Yep. <laughs> I just I just clap for myself. I feel weird now. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and and the 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 whole him aging quickly was just you know them trying to represent the the the, the non linear time of the aliens and how he's he's kind of existing at all points at once. Yeah, uh, in, it is in disturbing. Where he's kind of looking. Sorry to interrupt, but he's kind of like looking at himself at different points in his life, which is. Which is very, it's, it's unnerving. So was the giant floating baby at the end just him at another point in time? It, well, the it's what baby. they turned him into. The star child? Yeah, the, 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 yeah, the star, they call it the star child. And it's like the in, next phase, right? The next, you know, evolution. Yeah, in, in the book, it's kind of, it, it says something along the lines of, you know, the star child looks at the gleaming blue planet beneath it and realizes it's a toy for it to play with or something like that you know some typically uh, arcane sort of sort of <laughs> sentence um but it's it he's essentially become the guardian of earth hmm yeah i did not get any of that maybe i should have read the book first <laughs> I'm just like, we're getting to the end. I'm like, oh, thank God. We're almost there. You, you let this... out an audible sigh of relief when you started seeing credits. <laughs> I really did. I was like, oh, thank God. Um, <laughs> but like the trippy colors, I'm like, this is cool. I don't really know why we're seeing the trippy colors, but it kind of reminds me of like Star Trek, the motion picture where <laughs> you go through the wormhole, except like much better than that. And... But then we see giant floating baby, and I'm just like, what the f*** is this? I don't understand this at all. Well, that's kind of the... That's, well, mission it's accomplished, a, it's a cop out, but Mr. That's Kubrick. The, that's the point. Mission accomplished. Well, the, the, the grooviest thing about this is the movie was a critical failure. Right. Uh, 240 people left the premiere at intermission. Wow. Clark, Clark left at intermission in tears. Um, because yeah, so many people were leaving. Wasn't didn't he? Yeah, didn't he say that it wasn't the story that he thought he was going to tell? With I thought I well, I thought I had heard that, and I spent uh, about most of the hour before we started this show trying to find some corroboration on that, and mm-hmm. I couldn't. Um, but he was just he was just so upset at the reaction people had. But then what happened uh-huh. was. All of the 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 potheads and the and the and the the acid trippers yeah. found out what was going on at the end, and they were the ones that made it into a a, a box office success. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because it did end up making its money back in a little. Oh bit. yeah, yeah. 
but it wasn't until the nineties that it, that it finally got started showing up on critical as like one of the best films ever. Oh, really that late? I mean, not yeah. that's, you know, almost 30 years ago now, but that it seems like it you would had to be say popular that, in the, uh, oh my god <laughs> my stepdaughter is dur- turning 21 on monday so i don't even want to talk about it <laughs> sorry dear um but yeah i would have expected it would have been more popular especially like during the 70s with all of the you know we just went to the moon and now we have all this trippy drugs stuff going on like uh, but not until the 90s that it was really everybody started to be like hey this was great hello can you hear us yeah, you just got really quiet. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that was just because we were done. Uh, we were done with that point. I do have one. I was waiting for Virginia to say, "Is there anything else?" Because I have another. I have one more thing that I'd like to say about this. I mean, y'all can say as many more things as you want. Uh, then that number is one. Okay. For me, anyway. <laughs> so I love. I love this, and I remember when this happened. Um, on New Year's Day in two thousand one, a replica of the monolith. From 2001, A Space Odyssey appeared in in Seattle on Kite Hill. It was a guerrilla art installation by a group of Seattle artists calling themselves, quote, some people. Guerrilla art. <laughs> it, like, and it was like, it looked exactly, oh, guerrilla art. I didn't even, <laughs> I didn't even think about that. It smelled like the other gorilla, yeah. not like the gorillas in the beginning of the film. But yeah, I thought that was great. Like, oh yeah, it's 2001. We're going to have monoliths. <laughs> well, speaking of the gorillas, just a, just a, a little factoid you may or may not be aware of. Uh, one of the crew uh, that did the ape makeup was Rick Baker, who right. went on to win an Academy Award, lots of Academy Awards, actually. Um, but he also ended up doing uh, the, the apes for the, the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes. Makeup, awesome. which whether you like the movie or not, I mean, I it was garbage, but the 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 apes were fantastic, and uh, uh, Rick Baker also he I think he I think he won his first Oscar for an American Werewolf in London. Um, he did the 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 transformations in that, and uh, hmm. I don't think want, I've ever seen that. When you want an early hominid, that's what you call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You haven't seen well. That's another one to add to the list. <laughs> so many i haven't seen because <laughs> american werewolf in london is you know I, you know i don't like horror films but it is brilliant oh really yeah yeah actually I've, i haven't seen that yeah hmm. we should watch it it it's uh, it's funny and it's genuinely scary that's tough to do yeah it is. that's impressive <laughs> So do either of you have anything else to add before we move on to the Bechdel test? Nope. I'm good. So as a reminder to our listeners, the Bechdel test is a movie has to have two or more named female characters who talk to each other about something other than a man. Three criteria. Go ahead. We have watched three Stanley Kubrick movies. Oh, gee, I wonder. Dr. Strangelove. (laughs) A Clockwork Orange, and now this movie. And do you think any of them passed? No, they did not. Mm. I beg to differ. I am about to get to what I think you're about to say. <laughs> there are, although although I, I do have a caveat with my beg to differ, so go ahead. There are two or more named female characters. Mm-hmm. There's Miss Turner, the secretary. Yes. Elena, Dr. Kalinan, Kalinan, and Dr. Stret- Stretniva. 
However, they don't talk to each other in English. Okay. And there, there were, <laughs> and if there had been subtitles, I would have been like, okay, that that's it. If there had been a translation, done, passed. And they're like, that dress looks cute on you. But there was no translation, so how do they could have been talking about that dude that was with them? I don't know. If if there's no way for us, the average United States English speaking public, mm, to right. tell what they said, then I don't think that really counts. I will ask Elena at work what they say. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, you see, I my my only disagreement is that I I don't think you can make a judgment because we don't know what they said. But uh, again, the Bechtel test is about like. Here's the bare minimum. If they had just said one thing each to each other out of the two and a half hours, I think that's kind of like what the Bechtel test is about, right? Yeah. Like it's just a very bare minimum. And we're arguing whether or not <laughs> whether or not it's made this very, very small like the bar the bar is barely off the ground. Right. Yeah. And I mean I can I can kind of see what you're saying. Like I think we had this discussion for another movie we watched, although I can't remember it, where a woman was using sign language. Right. So, of yeah. course, she's even though she's not physically speaking, she's communicating. communicating. Yeah. Um, and a knowing, what about a knowing look? <laughs> I, I don't know. We could, we could debate that. I'm just saying I understand your statement. I'm standing yeah. by my statement. It didn't pass. I, can I just say before we move on from the Bechtel test? Yes. In space, no one can hear you talk if you're a woman. <laughs> Moving on. So, have either of you um, had your opinion changed since your initial viewing? Like, has it gotten better over time? Has it gotten worse over time? Are there things that you notice more now? Or things that you're like, oh my god, I can't believe that happened. Personally, I, I'm falling more and more in love with this film the more, I, the more I see it. Which isn't all that often. Like, it's one of those things. It's sort of like, like, I love art. And I love, like, I went to art school. And I had lots of art history. And I love going to museums. But honestly, they're boring. They're, they can be pretty boring. But there are, like, moments of, like, just, like, wonderfulness hidden in all that boringness <laughs> and i feel like this movie is like that we're like yeah you know what though there's something just beautiful and sometimes almost perfect about this movie I, yeah i agree i i my, my opinion of the movie hasn't changed i've always considered it to be a classic yeah. um it, it's probably telling that i've uh, my wife gave me the blu-ray for my birthday uh, many years ago and this was only the second time it's been out of its case um, it's just, you know, it, it, like Shane just said, sometimes art is not exciting. And, uh, while I've watched 2010, probably, you know, two dozen times over the course of, of my life, uh, it's just a movie I'll put on in the background and just have playing, uh, 2001, that's when you, you know, that it, it, it's like the difference between, a beer and, you know, sipping brandy, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, right. And, and I don't particularly like brandy, but if someone gave me one, I would sip it very slowly. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to be in a very specific kind of mood to be like, you know what? I'll put on 2001. Yeah. And you know what? I, mm -hmm. I will say this much. Um, normally I don't even bother with the Dawn of Man section. I usually just jump straight ahead to the, the bone flying up in the air. I yeah. wish we had done that. Oh my god! 
Um, but for you guys, I actually watched the whole thing and found it oh, a lot you. shorter than I expected it to be. Yeah, you know what? I always tell people, oh, yeah, it's 45 minutes before there's a word of spoken dialogue. And it's not that long. It's, it's 25. 20, 25 minutes. Yeah. I thought Dawn of Man was, yeah, it was like almost an hour. <laughs> so, yeah, Virginia, are there any pop culture references you now understand? Um, well, like I mentioned a little earlier, I see a lot of this movie, 2001, in other science fiction like Star uh, Star Trek, Star Wars, um, other ones that I'm totally blanking on right now. But, of course, I love Star Trek, so that's what my mind immediately went to. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be hard to say, oh, this thing in 2001 made me think of this. The only exception to that, and I heard this, I think, in a jewelry commercial <laughs> during Christmas one year, okay. was the, I'm sorry, Dave, I'm afraid I can't do that. Like, I want to say it was like a Christmas jewelry commercial where, uh-huh. like, the onboard, like, on-star nah, lady yeah. was like, <laughs> you should go to K Jewelers or whatever to get your wife a Christmas present. And he's like, that's great. Now let me out of the car. And she's like, I'm sorry. I'm afraid I can't do that. <laughs> I don't know. Because I never understood. What, I'm like, why is this car holding this man hostage? <laughs> I don't understand this commercial at all. This computer is rebelling. So now I'm like, oh, yeah, that is really a really weird connection to have. But, like, that has stuck with me <laughs> since my childhood. Um, but, yeah, other than that, it's just sort of vague kind of references in the way the movie was made or like the like the spaceship kind of reminded me of a like a Klingon warbird before it had like the warbird ring because it had like the circular discovery one the circular like pilots area or whatever Mm. with the neck and then like the weird yeah you could almost just put like wings on the back of the discovery one and kind of make a (laughs) warbird out of it yeah a little bit a little. I know. I know. The Rick is, is the different. Rick's the the tech expert on that, he's so he's probably like, say. "Y'all he's are try- wrong." He's like holding his tongue. I feel. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm huh. what I'm what I'm holding my tongue on is try is starting to go into the minutia of the design of the discovery because I that that would just blow <laughs> everyone to death. <laughs> but you're not wrong. Like the the fact that they lob nuclear weapons out the back. We're not going to talk about that. See, that's we fine. had well. I, that, that, that's exactly the point. It was <laughs> at some point during the the. The, the the writing process, Clark was like, hey, let's have it dr- uh, powered by a nuclear pulse engine, which right. requires the engines to be very, very far away from the from the, the, the crew cabin because they generate so much hard radiation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we just watched Chernobyl. <laughs> that, yeah, like, that seems like a pleasant. terrible idea. <laughs> well, no, a nuclear pulse engine is actually a really good idea, but you've got to make sure you're far away from, from any planet before you turn it on. Oh, right. Oh, yeah, that would make sense. So I have a question for Uh y'all. In the making of the movie, how do you think it would be different with today's technology? Or does that question not even stand because it was so groundbreaking in creating the technology that we see today? Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah, there's so much of it was so lovingly and imaginatively and creatively, you know, executed. I mean, the, the, the only thing that really sticks out is, like, 
you could make the early hominids really look like Australopithecus or whatever it was supposed to be. Or at least like the ones from the Planet of the Apes instead (laughs) of just like men in gorilla costumes. I mean, the movement was great. The movement was like amazing and and informed, I think. But I don't know. The design could have looked like, you know, like we know those are dudes in suits and ladies in suits. Mm -hmm. Rick? I I think that, uh, you know, any modernization any like if someone decided to reboot this movie i would have to find them and murder them <laughs> right, um, right. <laughs> i get it because this i mean the, visually you know like you know like i said with just a couple of exceptions like where that you know that particular satellite is clearly just a two-dimensional drawing um <laughs> you know i think the the what cg would do to this film would just kill any charm it had left yeah i agree I but uh, I that being said, you know, kind of like looking at Tolkien, you know, both Tolkien and and Kubrick could have done with a much more aggressive editor. <laughs> <laughs> what maybe fifty-seven less songs in Lord of the Rings? <laughs> oh my goodness, Lord of the Rings, another long movie. <laughs> True. So, do you gentlemen have anything else to discuss before we wrap it up? I do not. I would just like to just to make an appeal to if if after listening to this you've been you, you've been you know on the fence about watching this movie and now you're not you're you're still on the fence. Uh, if you are a science fiction fan, uh, you owe it to yourself to watch this movie just once. You don't have to own it. You don't have to you know you like you know like we said fast forward is your friend in this movie because there's a lot of really long sequences where you can mm. just watch it at double speed and still get what's going on. Um, but if you if you are in any way interested in the genesis of what we consider to be good science fiction filmmaking is this is it. And it's it's very much well worth the watch. Yeah, I'm glad I've watched it now that, you know, I can understand more of that better. Um, and I would definitely say, yeah, you know, watch it in chunks or fast forward or or something. Um, it's tough to sit through all at one time. Yes. And like I said, I love the movie and I can't get through it in one sitting. So I think that wraps it up, right? Right? Yes. Um, Rick, why don't you tell people where they can find you? Uh, you can find me at the Starbase The Next Generation podcast or the Open the Iris podcast, which is our Stargate SG-1 show, uh, or Infinite Diversity, where I interview folks who are bringing infinite diversity into the world, uh, or on Cosmic Potato from time to time and Captain Game Show from time to time. Um, you can find our show on a bunch of platforms like iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. We're also on the Cosmic Potato Podcast Network at CosmicPotato.com. And you can find a lot of other great shows there, like the ones that Rick just mentioned, like Captain Game Show and Cosmic Potato at CosmicPotato.com. As for us, just go to WaitYouNeverSeen.com to find links, social media, and contact information. Leave us some feedback and let us know if you have any suggestions for movies or TV shows we should watch. That's our show for today. Next time we'll be watching Say Anything. Which I have never seen, which I'm sure surprises some of our audience. Because I'm the boy and I'm not supposed to watch the romantic comedy. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Bye. My mind is going. Daisy. (laughs) Daisy. (laughs) 
That was so damn sad. It was sad. Like, it goes from, like, you're super scared of this, like, <laughs> monster computer. I'm, I can feel it. <laughs> you know, the very first voice synthesizer, uh, whoever programmed it, had it sing yeah. Bicycle Built for Two. Yes. Oh, yes. I didn't know that. In 1950, whatever the heck. It was a while back. Like, f- further back than I think it would even be possible. But they chose singing for, for a, vo- a computer voice because singing can have, like, staccato and it doesn't, and it's fine. Like, you know, staccato, you know, that staccato kind mm-hmm. of quality. Mm-hmm. Give me your answer, too. <laughs> <laughs> 